0: Well, welcome to another new week here on the bottom line show new week new month new everything as we get all ready to have a conversation about some really good encouraging news that's happening in the world some not so encouraging news a new study that i think is of huge benefit uh in regards to helping women and anxiety and then a study of what it really means to love as god first loved us so how what do you say for the next 90 minutes buckle in uh, buckle up Let's get ready to take off and uh, do this thing right. Hey, the first report to kick off the month, I think is one, and I, you know, it, it's interesting in the culture that we live in, how many people have a tendency to think of certain issues at certain times a year, because we're kind of conditioned to do so. Case in point, um, whenever January rolls around, you think of Martin Luther King, and you might think of African-American history. Or in February, of course, that's what we call Black History Month. And it has something to do with Abe Lincoln's birthday and freeing the slaves or Frederick Douglass's birthday, something like that. But it also has something to do, I think, with the fact that February only has 28 days in it. I I mean that most sincerely. I mean, there are other reasons, more compelling reasons for doing it. But I'm just, I'm a little curious as to why that's where it happens. But I know in the publishing world, here's what happens on our end. Um, I wind up getting bombarded With all sorts of material hey you want to interview this african-american author this and it for february that's really it and then it never happens again until the end of the year so i try to make it a point to talk about people based on accomplishments based on what god is speaking to me and not necessarily focusing on ethnicity exclusively because that's what everyone tells us we're supposed to do but rather saying hey if there's something good and noble and right and praiseworthy and lovely scripture tells us we're supposed to uh take a look at that and so our first story today has something to do with racial identity but it also has something to do with the number of people who are overcoming obstacles in their world to actually uh, enjoy a better life for the way things that they hope and pray that things will be now case in point this is a new study it came from a group called the institute for family studies And they took a look at young men, which doesn't happen that much in statistical analysis. I mean, I'm just being perfectly frank here. What typically happens in statistical analysis is who are we trying to cater to? Well, it's young women, of course. Look at the brochures for colleges and private schools and things like that, and you will see a plethora of information that is targeting women. You could look at a college recruiting webpage, for example. And what you'll see is women of color, women of different, you know, issue, uh, depending on where they are with their gender gender assignment. And then, you know, older, younger, whatever, and there might be a guy in the background, but you know, you wonder why colleges have this statistic that, you know, the graduation rate, well, attend, co- attending college right now, for every 100 men who attend college, the last time I saw this stat, it was 134 women were attending. The number of college degrees, women are getting more associate degrees, more bachelor's degrees, more master's, more doctorates than, ever, than, than men. Uh, and this has been going on for years. So it's no surprise then that when it comes to uh, young men and achievement, you don't always hear that much about it because there isn't that much to achieve. You know, if a guy doesn't go to college now, he really doesn't have a chance. Whereas it used to be a guy could finish high school, get a blue collar job, find a reasonably priced home to live in and could support a family. Not anymore. So what is it that helps young men succeed? And what is it that keeps them from succeeding? There are many people that say, well, there are some issues in our society that have been systemic you know, from, from the, since the foundation of the nation. And that's kind of holding people back. Well, okay, we could look at that. Um, Let's look at some other factors too. May I just recommend to each of us the fact that we take a look at how the world, especially the United States government, treats the nuclear family as described by God in scripture. Mom and dad, married, have kids, kids grow up, learn biblical values, get a good education. You know, it doesn't have to be a spectacular education, it has to be a good education taught you know how to survive learn a trade learn how to buy and sell stuff you know whatever it is just the basics and the culture today says no you don't want that no 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 you don't father and mother what the heck what if two women are in love and they want to be a family or two men or a single person or three people or four people or takes a village you know we, we don't need that other stuff that's old-fashioned it's patriarchal uh, no one cares about that nonsense interestingly enough we've seen the effects of that over time over the last many 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 years we've seen how challenging it is for people who are of certain backgrounds to overcome basically their background oh yeah you'll hear it's the whole society is you know coming at you and trying to keep you from succeeding but the reality is, well, the society on the whole is going to have an impact on what you do, where you go to school, where you live, where you work, that type of stuff. I mean, th- those, are, those are some variables that you can't really, you can't really uh, work around unless you move to a different part of the country or maybe you know somebody in certain places. But the values that you are taught at home, the values that are lived out in front of you, at your home, at your school, at your church, with your relatives, with your friends, those actually have a much more impressionable uh, imprint on you than what society on the whole is saying. The person, I remember talking to a young broadcaster many years ago, Um, I was in a position of management and he was just starting out and he had gotten an opportunity to host a weekend show and I remember asking him how it was going. He said, it was terrible. I have to drive you know, two hours each way to get here and I don't make a lot of money and my wife didn't have a job. And then he looked at me and he said, it's because of guys like you, I can't succeed. And I said, really, why is that? Well, because you have the good jobs and it's time for you guys to get out of the way and uh, give us young guys a chance. And I went, whoa, wait a minute, I'm not that old. Uh, interestingly enough, he's no longer in the industry. So maybe it wasn't a good fit for him, but the idea that he was looking at the fact that he wasn't succeeding in the industry for the simple reason that everybody else was making it so he couldn't do it. I would beg to differ. The Institute for Family Studies has completed a brand new study and I wanted to share it with you because they, they're, they're promoting this under the headline of um, you know, one race over another in terms of saying, hey, you were concerned about this ethnic group but we want to show you that when it comes to young men and ethnicity, uh, just about every group is actually succeeding. The percentage of men, and here's what they call uh, you know, the, the, the success quotient, and that is people who live in the upper class. And back in the days, you remember upper class, lower class, middle class? That was really just a distinction taking the entire economic outlook and dividing it into thirds. So whoever had the most money, the upper third, were called the upper class. Whoever was at the bottom end of the rung was called the lower class. And everybody else was middle class. And middle class wasn't a bad place to be. But now it seems like you need to be, quote, unquote, upper class just to have a fighting shot at getting a good home and this, that, and the other thing. So uh, Institute for Family Studies put together a study asking the question, what would help young men move up the economic ladder most effectively. And it's been pretty well documented over time that when it comes to upward mobility among young men in the United States, the guys who are usually at the short end of the stick are black boys, African Americans. Matter of fact, if you look back at upper, lower, and middle class in 1960 in the United States, the percentage of white guys who were in upper class was about 39% of the upper class, percentage of men in the upper third income bracket. Uh, Asian men, 37%. Hispanic men, 19%. And African-American men, 13%. Now, what were the things that were keeping them back? Well, remember in 1960, we still hadn't really fully experienced all of the civil rights movement. We didn't have the Civil Rights Act. There were a lot of things as basic as voting, you know, that uh, it just, It didn't really happen. But education was huge. Family, also huge. Full-time job, huge. And here's one for the feminists. Men who get married and stay married in a good marriage. Doesn't have to be the end-all, be-all marriage. It just has to be a good, solid, thriving, stable marriage. When you put those components all together and introduce them into the lives of white guys and Asian guys and Hispanic guys and black guys, it's amazing how the numbers that I just shared, the 39, 37, 19, and 13, all go up. They all went up, as a matter of fact, with one exception. On the other side of this break, I want to talk about why we are seeing so many young African-American guys now living what we would call upper-class lives. And it's not that the culture is holding them back. It's that they have chosen to reject what the culture tells them is norm and have moved into a better way. Let's talk about that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. By investing in the Wilson Financial Services 4D or four-dimensional account, your investment is guaranteed against loss. It provides long-term care benefits, permanent
1: income benefits, and inflation benefits all at the same time. You know, I had a client come in this morning, and the first thing he asked me was, tell me about 4D money. I said, you've got an account right now that's one-dimensional. It's paying you 6% for the next three years, and that's the one dimension it has. I said, 4D money has four dimensions. It'll pay you 4 to 6% a year, but it has three additional dimensions. Number one, it'll provide you with long-term care benefits. Number two, it'll provide you with permanent income benefits. And number three, it'll provide you with inflation benefits, all under the heading of 4D money. So when I explain these things to people, they say, well, you know, that sounds too good to be true. I said, I know, but we have got millions and millions of dollars of clients' money in these accounts, and it's in black and white. It's true. Ask Dennis Wilson and his team at Wilson Financial Services
0: to explain the four dimensions of their 4D account. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970 for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, analysis, balance, and clarity segment about uh, young men. We don't always talk about young men in this culture because quite frankly, the society doesn't have any need for them. We sell stuff to women. I remember meeting with a guy who was the uh, head of, uh, I guess it was uh, uh, enrollment or admissions, that's what I'm looking for, at a leading Christian university here in Southern California. And I asked him for for the demographics on the school. And so he showed me. And uh, they had about 10,000 in their student body and it was 7,200 women and 2,800 men. And I said, wow, I didn't realize you were the University of Jan and Dean. And he said, what do you mean the University of Jan and Dean? And I said, you know, two girls for every boy. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, he didn't laugh. Um, but then I asked him, I said, why is that? Is it because women are are more likely to go to college than men? And he looked at me and he goes, well, you might say that. I said, but I hear another shoe ready to drop. And he goes, well, let's face it. If we didn't have a football team and a basketball team, and a baseball team, we would recruit any men to our school. And I said, why is that? Do they have better options? He goes, no, they're just not as motivated. And I thought to myself, that's crazy. But then again, I realize it's not that crazy because if all you do is market to everyone saying, we got to get girls in school, we got to get girls in school. I get it, but there's a whole generation of guys who did not come pre-wired saying, well, I don't care what they say, I'm going to college. I think the worst thing that feminism has done to the culture has told everybody, well, men come pre-wired a certain way, and we have to change that. Uh, Your masculinity is toxic, don't you know? Instead of saying, hey, wait a minute, everybody has to be taught. Everybody needs to learn. Look what we did with the Civil Rights Act, 1964. We wound up creating a welfare state to where it used to be that 21% of African-American kids grew up with no dad in the home. Now it's 75%. Because the government created incentives, so that mom would want not want to marry dad, and so if dad wants to be part of the child bearing, but then uh, not part of the child rearing, he's got incentive to do so. A new report from the Institute for Family Studies takes a looks at takes a look at uh, white young men, Asian, Hispanic, and black young men, and their share of upper income from 1960 through the middle of the 2010s and it's very, very interesting to see. According to this report, the number of white guys who were in upper class was 39% in 1960. It's now 42%. The number of Asian guys who were in the upper class in the United States, it used to be 37%. Now it's 45%. The number of Hispanics, totally static. 19% in 1960, 19% today. One out of every five uh, Hispanic men is living an upper-class life. But the biggest growth spurt, bar none, was African-American young men. The number nearly doubled from 13% of African-American guys to 23%. So what's the difference? Is it uh, having better legislation? Is it having, you know, less of a street mindset, more of a you know, blue-collar-to-white-collar mentality? Well, take a look at what the statistics say and ask yourself if you see the, similar, uh, the similarities coming through. There are three major factors that are linked to financial success of every man in their midlife today, and especially for African-American guys, and that is education, work, and marriage. Now, here's what's it. If you have... A college degree, a full-time job, or a spouse, you are much more likely than your peers to end up in the upper income bracket by the time you hit your 50s. Full stop. Does that sound like a biblical worldview to you? A man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. They'll build a home. Husband is the provider for the family working full-time to do what he can. And I get it. There are a lot of families these days where mom out-earns dad. That's not the point. The point is, does dad have the attitude that says, I'm responsible for making sure our needs are met? And then, of course, the education. If you need more education to get the better job, does dad have the opportunity to do that? Well, according to the Institute for Family Studies, in the African-American community, the number of black men who are reaching success, financial upper echelon success by their 50s has doubled over the past five decades. Now, isn't that encouraging? Because it's encouraging to me that it has doubled over the past five decades while not at the expense of anybody else. Everyone's thriving. It just seems like the black guys are thriving more. So what does this mean for us in the body of Christ? Well, it means something in the sense that the biblical worldview played out in real time is actually the best way to go. As the noted theologian and economist Bono uh, once said, this is the guy who had a real heart for third world countries that were drowning in debt. And I remember he would launch the one campaign and the whole idea was let's get these uh, big, large countries to forgive third world debt and that will help uh, increase the standard of living. And back when he said that, what, 20 some years ago, the percentage of people living on less than a dollar ninety a day was staggering. It was like a third of the world's population. But now, as the world's population has gone up to 8 billion people, that number is down below 1 billion. And the reason why is because more people have opportunities to work their way out rather than to have debt cut to countries. The idea that you cut debt to nations sounded altruistically wonderful, but that didn't mean the government was going to pass that on to the people. And Bono years later said, you know, I realize that the solution for world poverty is not government handouts. It's simply giving people a chance to work, to start their own businesses. In other words, capitalism was the cure. Brothers and sisters, we can talk all we want about political posturing and who's holding whom back and this, that, and the other thing. One of the best ways we can bring about justice is not writing a bunch of checks. It's literally trying to make sure that pathways are clear to educational opportunities, to employment opportunities. And yes, let's even start promoting the idea of good old fashioned courtship and marriage because it really is good for society on the whole. The presence of a father in the home makes it a lot easier for young men to say, okay, my dad did it, I can do it too. But what happens when dad is in the home and mom's in the home and mom is dealing with some emotional issues? How does that translate into the lives of their children, especially their daughters? Uh, Just as this has been a good report to share, we've got a rather alarming one to share on the other side of this break about that very issue. That's coming up next as the bottom line continues. Here at Kay Bright, we are proud to recommend Stephanie and Jim Cover of Cover Law because they take such good care of their clients.
2: I was coming home, it was like two days before Christmas, and I was sitting at the bottom of a hill, and somebody just came smashing into me. Like, they didn't even break or anything. They were coming down a steep hill. The people that hit me had no insurance, no license, no proof of anything. I had a lot going on in my life at the, at the time. I was busy at work. I was doing a lot of overtime. My husband came down with cancer. That was really a hard point in my life for my husband and I. She was by my side trying to help me through the accident and giving me personal support and telling me to keep the faith. And I was all ready, like to, you know, throw in the towel. And she she just kept me going. They're just hardworking people. They know their stuff. They're very educated. They make you feel comfortable. They stick with you all the way. I used them as attorneys. Now they're friends. And once in a while, I tease them Do I need to get in trouble so I could retain you guys? I'd do anything to help those guys. I highly recommend them. I mean, I haven't had need for an attorney before, and I fell into the right hands.
0: In the event of an accident, call Cover Law right away, 877-214-4935. That's 877-214-4935. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and we've had some good news to share about how young men in the uh, earning years, 30s, 40s, and by the time you hit 50, more men are reaching upper class, which is good. It's especially good if they are married and have kids. Uh, that's really good. And nowhere have we seen the growth. Remember the numbers. Uh, young men in the Anglo community, uh, 39% used to be upper class in the 19, uh, the 1960s. Now it's up to 42%. 37% of Asian guys were in the upper class in 1960. Now it's 42%, uh, excuse me, 45%. Uh, 19% of Hispanic guys, it's still 19 But the number of African-American young men who reach the what we call upper class by the time they hit their 50s has doubled over the past 50 years. And that's very, very encouraging From 13 percent to 23 percent. Now, having dad and mom married and have a certain level of education and a full time job can bring a lot of peace and security to a home. But the more we see fractured families, broken homes and the like, we also know that anxiety can run pretty high in a family. So I don't want to say who's responsible for this, but who's responsible for this? I mean, it's something to think about, right? I mean, where does all this anxiety come from? Well, I have good news and bad news. The good news is we know the bad news is you may not want to hear it. A new study of Canadian children ages uh, 10 years of age or so had previously participated in a study that was focused on families at risk for mood disorder researchers were looking at whether nature versus nurture would have anything to do with anxiety. So if genetics played a large role, anxiety disorders presumably would occur in children of both sexes at the same rate, regardless of whether mom or dad was the parent passing down the anxiety condition. I, You know, that that would seem to make the most logical sense, wouldn't it? You've got dad has a history of depression let's say and it's in the gene so dad and mom get married they have a couple of kids and both the kids wind up clinically depressed because of that and then they get married and they have a couple of kids and one of their kids has it if it's genetic we could solve it that way but if kids were developing anxiety disorders because they were modeling themselves on and learning from the parent of the same sex then they could say well this is more of a nurture versus nature situation and a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression isn't necessarily something that you're hardwired into but rather it's something you learn how to do and that's interesting especially in light of a new revelatory report that says that uh, whatever uh, clinical depression you might be experiencing might not actually be all in your head quote unquote but rather it might be kind of a gut microorganism type of issue it might be your diet and exercise (laughs) quite frankly But this new Canadian study finds out that a mother's anxiety disorder increases the risk of her daughter's anxiety disorder in the same study. Sons were no more likely to have anxiety if their dad had one. But if their father did not have one, that actually lowered the risk of the son developing one. The kids of... The parent who had the same of the same gender who had an anxiety disorder had almost three times the chance of developing that same condition compared with their peers. So think about, in other words, simply put, if mom has issues with nervousness, anxiety, etc., etc., there are three times more likely that her daughter will have those same issues, and that's what the study is actually designed to prove. Now. There's a casual link that could be established that might prevent this from happening. But, you know, it's, well, see if this sounds familiar. I remember being a relatively young parent. Uh, my son was maybe two, three years of age, and the girls were f- four and seven years older than them. And we had a friend over in front of the house, uh, lived in a condo complex, so you didn't really have front yards per se. And the kids all went running down the front walk to go to the park. And as they were running there was a slope it was an angle and one of the kids tripped on her shoelace and she fell and skinned her knee well another kid tripped over her because the first girl had fallen so i watched and the other girl who tripped and fell was my daughter i watched my daughter looked at me and she went ow and i said "Ow!" the girl next to her tripped and i noticed a trickle of blood coming out of her skin and knee and burst into hysterics and my daughter looked at this girl and went what's wrong with her? And so we got a little back teen, cleaned it up, put a big Band-Aid on it and called her mom. And she went home sobbing. And I looked at my daughter afterwards and I said, are you okay? And she said, yeah, I'm fine. And she said, what was up with her? And I said, honey, I think she learned that from her family. She learned that if somebody fell down, you just lose it. If mom lost it, you lost it. Matter of fact, uh, this study in the Journal of American Medicine published it. This Canadian study literally says that what's what's happening here is that anxiety can, in fact, be a learned behavior. In one of the experiments that was conducted, parents were randomly instructed to either act anxiously or calmly while a a child was doing something very basic, like preparing for a spelling test. And see how the kid would respond. And it's amazing how many kids, if mom and dad lost it, the kids would lose it. But if mom and dad held it together, the kids were fine. Would that we learn that type of behavior and be able to mirror it for our children? I think that's when we talk about, God being the God of all peace and comfort and, and strength or whatever. We look to our Heavenly Father and he gives us that peace and that calm to face the world around us. And it's so important to have a father's influence in the life of his children, but especially in the life of his daughters. And as we continue, uh, Dr. Meg Meeker years ago wrote a landmark book on this topic called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. It's been a bestseller. It sold a half million copies. It's just a tremendous resource. It's been published and then republished and then reissued yet again. On the other side of this break, I want to have Dr. Meeker join me for a conversation about a brand new movie on based on the book strong Fathers, strong daughters it's been made into kind of a serialized if you will kind of a father of the bride type of story and it's streaming exclusively at pureflix.com starting today and you know what that means we're streaming something from pureflix that means we're going to have a couple of these you know PureFlix subscriptions to give away so keep our number handy 800-227-5278 800-227-5278 800-227-5278 that's the number to get you through to the bottom line Well, special guest joining me today here on The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Vars, joined by Dr. Meg Meeker, and we're going to talk about a book and a video and a project, a a new movie, theatrical release, that is probably one of the best biblical exhortations for dads I've ever been a part of. It's based on her book, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, and we have a link for the book and the movie up at TheBottomLineShow.com. Dr. Meg Meeker, welcome to The Bottom Line Show today.
3: Well, thanks so much for having me, Roger.
0: You killed me with this movie. Absolutely (laughs) did. I just... yeah. I, I,
3: I, don't, I don't know how else to say it, but I just,
0: it was, it was entertaining. It was thoughtful. I laughed. I cried. I cried hard. Yeah. I mean, and I'm a crier anyway. I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll cry, but it, it, it hit a lot of nerves. You that kind you. Of reaction? Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It gets it. And it's funny, Roger, because I mean, I didn't write the screenplay, but of course the book and, yeah. uh, I've watched the movie twice and I and I get choked up and teary each time and I mm-hmm. did laugh a couple of times. I think Pure Flix did a great job with the yes. movie. Yes. They really did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I,
0: t- two thumbs way up is what the way I, you know, definitely did that. I realized that kind of dates me but the gray hair does too. Um yeah. talk let's talk about that. This is probably you're writing to a generation of dads that is coming Out of a generation of dads who I would like to say were probably the most involved dads in their Mm -hmm. own generation. And even they are watching this and saying, wow, did I miss something or Mm -hmm. I got that right? I mean, it's almost like it's a report card for Mm -hmm. guys in my generation. Talk about that.
3: Sure, actually, you know, the reason I originally wrote the Strong Father, Strong Daughters book is because I really wanted to encourage dads to engage. I think that fathers were being told through our culture, that they just need to sort of orbit the family, kind of marginalize, mm-hmm. don't do a whole lot, That you don't really need to do that. And what I saw in my pediatric practice was that girls who had dads that were fairly engaged did so much better if they had anxiety, depression, eating disorders, school issues, whatever. And at the same time, so I was encouraging dads to stay involved. But at the same time, I saw in our culture that you know, men, men were being portrayed sort of as the butt of everybody's jokes and movies. Right. And so I just thought, you know, I really wanted to give a shot in the arm to dads, but also to tell them the truth, which is this is who they are. And this is how much they're needed. And this is how much their daughters want them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was what really hit a nerve with men as they go, wow, that really is true.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we need to be needed, but we mm-hmm. want to be needed too. But I think there's a part of it, if, if we're just being honest about father-daughter relationships, I don't know of too many dads who want to just show up and check off the boxes. I was the soccer coach dad. I was the band dad. I was, you know, whatever. I, I drove the truck. I did all those things without having a real, real relationship with our daughters, mm-hmm. especially. And this movie, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, in a very—it's a well-told story. I mean, I looked at my wife when I first watched. It, I said, "This is like Father of the Bride meets, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Dare to Discipline or something." You know, just yeah, to, yeah, that's what yeah, it felt like. Yeah, it had those yeah. elements, mm-hmm. but I, but I think there's a part too where you know you get to a point in your kids lives especially your daughter's lives and you and you want to know it made a difference and i think mm-hmm. that you've given dads a blueprint with the book strong Fathers, strong daughters and now with this movie you see a dad played by bart johnson who's kind of our new steve martin if you will for tv mm-hmm. you know, movie dads culminating around a wedding situation and saying that's kind of when you get your report card to find out how connected are you not necessarily how well you did but how connected are you is that an accurate statement
3: Exactly, exactly. And I think that the movie portrays beautifully what life for a father and daughter looks like if you're disconnected. Mm -hmm. And then in the end, what it looks like when you're connected. And it's not that hard. I think that a lot of fathers are very intimidated when it comes to their daughters. You know, they feel, I don't understand her. Her thinking is complex. What she does is complex. She's thinking about 15 things at one time. I don't. And so what dads tend to do is sort of pull away and leave everything to mom. Cause they, while wow, she's a woman, she understands her. Right. But mm-hmm. that's not what daughters want. And that's what they 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 that's not what they need. So I think I really think that um Bart Johnson does a good job transitioning mm-hmm. to a very different dad in the movie, but also making it look like, you know, it wasn't overwhelming. Um, with with some instruction encouragement which uh-huh. they say in the movie very graciously comes from my book uh-huh. yeah <laughs> um, which is pretty surreal for me to see in the movie a number of times um, uh-huh. but but that you really can do to, you really can engage and you can have a closer relationship um, with just some help and instruction and, and there you go
0: Yes, Dr. Meg Meeker is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. We're talking about the PureFlix release of the, their first original film uh, based on her book, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. It's streaming at pureflix.com, and we've got a link for the trailer for this movie up at thebottomlineshow.com. Um, there are all the principles show up, you know, nicely woven throughout the uh, the course of the dialogue, which is very, very well put together and very well acted. There's a there's one point in the movie and I, w- I don't want to be spoiler alert, but th- you talked about, Meg, how important it was. And, and Bart did such a great job of portraying this first. He's I've got it all together. I've got it. This is all going to yeah. happen. And she's going to follow me into business. And we're a team, you know, that type of stuff. Yeah. And you see how superficial that was. Mm-hmm. Then you see the despair. But then there's there's a point in the movie where he kind of hits a, a kind of a climatic point of release you know he's he's relieved it's like oh that's where it was and i found that to be so encouraging i want to talk about what it's like for the dads that you've spoken with and that you've observed and counseled over the years who they're thinking there's more to this than that Mm -hmm. but then when they find out that it really isn't as difficult as they make it the first response isn't regret but it's relief
3: it's relief and it's, it's it's a huge aha moment for them so it's that excitement the light goes off and there's relief too. And when those things merge, I think that there's a tremendous amount of joy that fathers get Mm. because they finally feel affirmed for who they know they should be. They know they want to be, and now they know they can be, and it's not so far away because I've heard so many men say, this was a game changer, a life changer for me and my relationship. With my daughter. Mm -hmm. And I'll admit, I kind of look at them and I say, really? Because because I wrote the book from the vantage point of a physician, but also as as a daughter looking towards her father, to sort of say, Dads, this is how your daughter sees you. Right. Now you can be this or not be this, but this is true. And that when dads it clicks in their mind, it is there's this huge sense of joy and relief that wow, it's possible. And I want it and I can get there.
0: Yeah. And it's nice to know that you can be a facilitator, but also you're walking that journey along with your daughter, along with your dad. And when you see that connection and how important it is um, then, well, you begin to realize, you know, the, the father's heart for all of his children, but especially for his daughters. Daughter. Dr. Dr. Meg Meeker is my guest today here on the bottom line uh, the movie, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters is up at pureflix.com. You talk about in, in the book, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, uh, Dr. Meeker, you talk about uh, one of the great gifts, and they kind of go hand in glove, that fathers can impart to daughters, and daughters are really looking to dads, to teach them is something you call pragmatism and grit. Help us, <laughs> yeah. help us understand what, what you mean by that. I love. A it lot of I
3: people think. have so, sort of asked me that. Yeah. Well, that that fathers can teach their daughters to understand clearly what's the right thing to do and then go and do it, but also that doing that takes some steely resolve, where you you put your jaw out and you say, okay, I'm going to go, this is what needs to happen. And I won't give up, you know, no matter what. And so that's really, I think what a father can bring to a daughter, that sense of clarity Mm -hmm. and that sense of here's what's right. And here's what's wrong, do this and, and don't ever give up. Yeah,
0: and that I, I think about the grit and the determination, and I have to wonder how many young women right now are trying so hard to make it on the kind of girl power slogans and things like that. But that's so driven by other girls, or maybe yeah. mother-daughter, and not them not realizing. Well, wait a minute. That kind of you know the perseverance, the grit, as you call it, yeah. or what was it in the movie The Holiday? They call it gumption. You know, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, 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 know, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. that type of thing that I guess it stick to itiveness. Yeah. You know, and, and not to say that women have a natural tendency against that, but when you see that imparted by dad it really does take hold a lot better.
3: You know, and it is interesting, and this is a sort of a, a, a very non-PC thing to say, but I'll say it because it's true anyway. In a daughter's eyes, um, a mother and father's role and authority are very different. A daughter feels that her mom has to say things like, you can do this and you can win and everything. And she goes, yeah, that's mom. But when dad says, and I remember this so clear with my own dad in medical school, you can do this it's done. Mm. There's a sense that it will happen. You've got to gut it out. And and only a dad can give that to his daughter. He's used to telling his son that. Mm -hmm. But what he needs to know is if you infuse that into their daughter, she'll fly. But girls aren't getting it, you're right, they're getting this sort of sense of perseverance, if you will, I wouldn't even call it that, from their friends and right. from school mm-hmm. and from social media. Well, that's not real and it doesn't work.
0: Yeah, I, I have a daughter, well, a couple daughters in, uh, well, just one just finished grad school, another one's still in. And I hear this a lot from their friends. Oh my gosh, it's so amazing what you're doing. And then it kind of trails off, like there's an ellipsis in their thought process. And I'm thinking, well, I can see what the difference is if you look at the family structure, because the friends are looking at this and saying, I couldn't keep fighting through these. You know what it's like to go through a graduate doctoral program, you know, and and have Mm -hmm. to keep doing that. Talk about your own relationship, Dr. Meg Meeker, with your dad. Where where did you learn this? Talk about
3: it. Well, it's It's hard for me to talk about my dad. My dad passed away 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. And and he had Alzheimer's. The wonderful thing is he got to read the book before his mind started mm, to go. Wonderful. And there's there's a point in the book where that illustrates what I'm talking about. Um, the first time I applied to medical schools, I was rejected by 25 schools, and I thought mm. my life was over. This is exactly <laughs> what I mean about you know, teaching girls grit. Right. And I overheard my father say in a phone call to a friend, my daughter Meg will be going to medical school in the next couple of years. And I was stunned. I was stunned because Mm -hmm. I'd just been rejected to every school. But I will tell you, Roger, when I heard my dad say those words, I knew that I knew that I knew I was going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my mother would say, oh, don't worry, you'll get in, you'll get, but but I said, you got to say that when my dad said it, it became a reality. And Mm -hmm. I will say something about my dad. My dad never pushed me to go to medical school, never told me what to do. But he always told me I was strong and I was smart. And when I went to medical school, that was in the day where 30% of the class was women and 70% were men. So it was, you know, it was tough. But my father always stood behind me and he taught me that grit. You know what? people are going to say obnoxious things, you're going to be told this and this, but you just keep doing excellent work and let all of those idiots fall away. <laughs> and, and he was right. Yeah. And so rather than get tangled up and being angry at things that are happening around you by people that are around you, Don't stay focused, stay gritty and you'll get to where you're supposed to be. So, uh, and my dad wasn't a perfect dad. People read the book and go, oh, you know, my dad was a very quiet man, never pushed. But when he spoke, it, it, it really, it changed me.
0: Yeah. it's amazing what dads can the influence a father can have even if they don't are even if they aren't men of many words and uh, I I can I can speak to that experience in my own home too because I get my gift of gab from my mom but Mm -hmm. uh, as I've gotten older I'm quoting my dad every day you know the dad used to say dad used to do it I'm like wait did he really even say those many words exactly (laughs) but yeah but uh, I know it's benefited my sister and his grandchildren more to come in just a moment as the bottom line continues talking with Dr. Meg Meeker today here on The Bottom Line. The book, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, has been made into a Pure Flix original movie. And the movie is streaming now at PureFlix.com if you'd like to see it. Of course, you could. they always offer our seven-day free trial. You can check it out that way. Um, we'll be giving away some subscriptions here later in the broadcast as well. And uh, also, you can watch the trailer at The Bottom Line Show com, uh, Dr. Meg Meeker, there are a lot of grandparents who are listening to this conversation right mm-hmm. now, and and sometimes you know there there may be a a wound or two between a father and a daughter who's now raising her own family and whatever. Talk about how a project like this, a movie like this, might help to uh, either reinforce or strengthen or or, or help a, a father daughter relationship that's kind of gone sideways, maybe reconnect again.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, often people ask me is it ever too late for that reconnection and that healing, and I say. absolutely. Absolutely not, never, because a daughter's always connected to her father through this sort of uh, this thread of gold. Now, it can go awry or it can go in, in the right direction. I've had a number of women who've read the book who say, when you showed fathers what their daughters needed, it made me realize what I wanted and needed but didn't get Mm. and then I was able to resolve it for instance there's one there's one um chapter um protect and defend her yeah they never felt protected Mm. they never felt their father was a hero so when they read that then they can resolve it and then move on and have better relationships with their kids and the same is true for fathers too they can read this and go wow my daughter wanted that and I didn't do that mm-hmm. um, you know teach her to fight and there's a beautiful scene in the movie where it's right from my book um, that I don't want to uh, be a, a spoiler about where he really uh, Bart really responds the way I would have said in my book to do and so you know and that was at a point when he wasn't quite turned around yet so what I would encourage grandparents to do is say you know You need to sort of face what you got and what you didn't as a daughter, what you got and what you didn't from your dad, and resolve it. And also to understand, you know, God's the perfect father. So let your own dad go, let him off the hook. You know, Mm -hmm. he had reasons for doing what he was. But then use that to heal and then pour that into your relationship. If you're a grandfather, for instance, who had a bad relationship with his daughter, do whatever you can to heal that. But even if you can't, if you have a granddaughter, um, do it better with her.
0: Yes. You know, yes. that's
3: one thing grandparents could, do. you know, we learned a lot of mistakes, because even if we didn't learn them, our kids told them told us what we did wrong. Mm-hmm, when yeah. there's that so we get the list. <laughs> but then but then turn and and do differently. By your own daughter. So God gives us wonderful opportunities to make off up for lost time to heal old wounds, and to make things right again. And that's a wonderful gift for us to be able to have.
0: Dr. Meg Meeker is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. The book, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, has been made into a movie. It's streaming at PureFlix right now, and we have a link for the trailer up at thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, Dr. Meg Meeker, you got about 90 seconds left. Uh, I want to circle back around to the fact that you said, you know, watching the movie and seeing the book, you know, portrayed in this way uh, was very emotional for you, it was very gratifying for you. What was the one big takeaway for you, having seen it? Did you see anything in there, the way it was portrayed, that made you think a little differently about what you'd written and were work- God did led you in this journey?
3: You know, it really hadn't. And if anything, it affirmed that I was doing what God wanted. And I'll tell you why, because as I walked away from, from the movie, I felt so humbled to the point where I thought, Lord, how can you take this little speck of a person on this enormous globe and move and say, I want you to do this, which has been very, very hard. I mean, it's not glamorous at all, but it was incredibly humbled to to be called into encouraging men to have better relationships and to and to act out of their good instincts when they felt so insecure to do so so you know that really wasn't there wasn't any point in the movie where i said that's not what i said so i feel very grateful for good. that
0: good well they i i think they did a great job and oftentimes when you do see a movie based on a book uh the takeaway is oh that was good but this mm-hmm. one seems like it's firing on all eight or in your case on all 10 cylinders yes. uh, with regard to the movie, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, the movies yeah. up at the bottomline show.com. The trailer is it's available at pureflix.com streaming exclusively there. And uh, we anticipate, are there, is there anything more in the horizon for Dr. Meg Meeker books turning into pure Flix movies?
3: No, well, this is just interesting. Uh, not so far, but right before the Pureflix movie came out, I wrote um, something called the strong father, strong daughters masterclass mm-hmm. um, as a companion to the book, because father said, I love the book. Tell me what to do. Right. So I wrote that and I didn't know the movie was coming out. And just as that released, then the movie came out. So Excellent. really I'm focusing now where I believe God wants me, which is really on encouraging dads. So that's brand new too. That's all online. It's on my website, the Strong Fire, Strong Daughters Masterclass. So a lot of these things are converging and it's really exciting for me to see.
0: I love when God gets in the, in the way of oh, our plans and starts interceding and kind of wrecking. Exactly. We'll we can't plan to make it better. MegMeeker.com is where that we'll find that information.
3: Uh, uh, MeekerParenting.com Meeker. slash strong. And if they put strong and they'll get all of this stuff. Perfect.
0: So, okay. Meeker well, Parenting. MeekerParenting.com from Dr. Meg Meeker. And you'll find the manu- masterclass as well well as information about the book and the movies up at pureflix.com. So many exciting things happening in the life of Dr. Meg Meeker, and we're fortunate to have had the opportunity to spend a few moments with her catching up and learning more about that. Dr. Meg Meeker, thank you so much for the work that you've done, but also for being with us today here on The Bottom Line.
3: Thank you, Roger.
0: Boy, I love those conversations with Dr. Meg Meeker and this book, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, 10 Secrets Every Father Should Know. I've got a link for the book at TheBottomLineShow.com. Also the trailer for the movie at TheBottomLineShow.com. And the movie is streaming on PureFlix as of today. That's the only place you can see this movie. So check out the trailer. You'll enjoy it at TheBottomLineShow.com. By the way, speaking of the book, I'm holding a copy of it right here. I'd love to give it to you, uh, but then I have to give it to Teresa and then she answers the phone and then you can see about winning the book. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. My thanks again to Dr. Meg Meeker for a great conversation that you can see as well as here at TheBottomLineShow.com. You can hear it wherever we podcast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, uh, Spotify. I'm not sure, I'll be honest with you, I don't know if TBL is on Spotify all the time. I know the National Crawford Roundtable podcast is, but there if you want to watch this interview though because we've used a little zoom conversation and it's always great to see meg as well as talk with her that's up at myhopenow.com so you can check the video there and oh by the way we have copies of the book the video of strong fathers strong daughters which is great and i just over the weekend it didn't occur to me bart johnson was in high school musical He's the guy who plays the dad in uh, uh, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. (laughs) Anyway, um, the movie Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters is up at PureFlix.com. If you want to watch it for free, actually, they have a seven-day free trial. You can just go click on there, sign up for it, and you're good to go. But I have a copy of the book that this is based on. And the book is called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, 10 Secrets Every Father Should Know. Uh, It's up at thebottomlineshow.com and we're giving away a copy of the book right now. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. um, If you're a dad, doesn't matter how old your daughter is, this is a great resource to have if you're in the throes of parenting a daughter right now. These are great 10 principles to know so you can be more strategic and intentional. If you're a dad and you're older and your daughters are grown and you know maybe have moved on and they've got families of their own, it's a good way to kind of be a refresher course for you as to what your daughters really need in a relationship. And if you had a situation, maybe you're the daughter here and you and your dad either had a good relationship and it kind of fell apart or maybe you didn't have a great relationship this is a great resource to have to read at any age for fathers or daughters to take a look at these 10 principles that Dr. Meg Meeker has um uh, it's it's so very interesting um you know <laughs> uh she mentioned in the our conversation something that's in the intro to the book it was September of 1979 and the fact that she had graduated from college about a year earlier she had been applying to medical school and she'd been rejected by school after school after school to the point where she was ready to give up figured she was going to look at another option she was at home one uh, night at their house and she heard her dad talking to a friend on the phone and dad was not terribly the talkative type but uh he was talking to this friend and Meg's name came up and she heard him say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, they really do grow up fast. Well, I am excited to tell you that my daughter Meg will be starting medical school next fall. Boy, she's not quite sure where she's going to go, but I know she's going to go. And all of a sudden she said, I thought, wait, I- I've been rejected to just about every medical school I've applied to. And yet her dad's belief in her and her dad expressing that publicly led her down a journey as what is it about the father-daughter relationship that they have benefited from. Uh, number one, dad, know that you're the most important man in your daughter's life, and that number two, she needs a hero. Number three, you are her first love, so if she chooses the right kind of guy and you were a good example, then consider that an A for you. Uh, four, that you're going to teach her humility. Five, you're going to protect and defend her. Six, you're going to teach her that pragmatism and grit are two of the greatest gifts she'll ever get. Uh Six, or seven rather, be the man you want her to marry. Eight, teach her who God is. Nine, teach her how to fight. And 10, keep her connected. And I'll tell you, having spent a little bit of time with my oldest daughter, Emily, on the phone last night, a little over an hour from her new home in Texas and uh, getting a chance to see her spread her wings as a wife and mother and having a brand new home for their family and how exciting it is. And at the same time, hearing the younger version of her In her conversation and the things that she needed from me, it was nice to actually, as I was sharing with my other daughter (laughs) today through social media, I said, she thanked me for something I'd done for her and I said, well, you know, it's always nice. Dads need to be needed So. Uh, not in an unhealthy way, but in a healthy way as well. Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, 10 Secrets Every Father Should Know by Dr. Meg Meeker, who's been my guest for the past half hour here on the Bottom Line Show. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the Bottom Line. We'll take a quick break, KCBC audience. Enjoy the rest of your day. And Rabbi Schneider with Discovering the Jewish Jesus, what's coming up next on the network comes to you tonight on the Bottom Line Show Extra at 7. Coming up next, pastor and author Scotty Smith. We're going to talk about First John coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Well, today on The Bottom Line Show, we're going to take a look at a book of the Bible that gets overlooked, and yet it's probably, I would venture to guess, one of the most quoted books of the Bible uh, for everybody all throughout the course of the day. And the reason is there's so much about the love of God written in the epistle known as 1 John. And today here on The Bottom Line Show, I'm joined by Dr. Scotty Smith, who planted and pastored Christ Community Church in Franklin, Tennessee, was there for 26 years, uh, worked on the pastoral staff at West End Community Church as teacher in residence, and also served as adjunct faculty for Covenant Seminary, Westminster Theological Seminary, Philadelphia, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, and Western Seminary in portland oregon he's the author of numerous books and uh, today we're going to discuss one of his latest uh, uh, a study guide of sorts uh, on first john it's simply called first john relying on the love of god and we've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com scotty smith welcome to the bottom line show today
4: Thank you, Roger. It's great to be with you on the uh, on the third coast from the third coast, right here in Franklin, Tennessee.
0: <laughs> the third coast. We were talking before we came on the air here about the fact that you've got the the left coast or the west coast, then the east coast, and then all the New York and California transplants are kind of creating, you know, this this whole new move to the the, the third coast, which is uh, Tennessee area, and it's a beautiful ter- beautiful uh, part of the country for for sure. Hey, let's talk about First John for just a moment. I I, I met what I said, and I don't know if you have statistics uh-huh. in front of you or not. Not. but I hear first John quoted more by pastors, by Christians there's yeah. always something about you know we love because he first loved us or God made yeah. him who had no sin it just keeps coming out uh, Talk about why first John is so important it, not that the Gospel of John isn't but first John really has a special place in christian's lives
4: well it, it really does and I think it's important especially as we remember that the author of the Gospel of John, is the same author of the three epistles of John and the book of Revelation. So I think what makes makes each one of those books more understandable is in light of the others. And John the Apostle had such a profound experience of the love of God in his three years of life with the Lord Jesus en route to the cross. But it is a great book. It's written in a very specific context at a time when John's probably in his mid 70s so he is a, a wise apostle and has a lot to say
0: there are some valuable lessons that we can pull from 1 John and you've written a beautiful outline for us in the book called 1 John Relying on the Love of God we've got a link for this book up at the a uh, part of this series of really practical bible study books that uh, it gives us some some tangible expressions of God's love but in ways that we can impart with other people uh, the the whole thesis of First John, really, the message, really, is, is, is that we are made for intimacy with God. And I know that that's a message that a lot of people need to hear. Some of us know it, but we don't always live li- like it. But why is it so important for us to know this, and why is it so easy for us to miss this part of God's character?
4: Well, I think a lot of times we approach the study of Scripture primarily looking for truth, and that's not wrong whatsoever but really um the the nature of biblical revelation is it's good it's true and it's beautiful now those aren't three different categories it's just that especially in a book like 1 John you see this highly relational orientation that that God doesn't just want to be understood in Jesus he wants us to deeply know him and that's why i chose that one phrase out of uh, 1 John and so we know and can rely on the love God has for us. It's uh, deeply personal, it's corporate, but it is a book that pushes the envelope on this whole theme of, am I coming alive to the love of God, or just convinced about the truth of God?
0: Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and therein lies the rub. Dr. Scotty Smith with me today here on The Bottom Line. Uh, the book is called First John, Relying on the Love of God. It's a study guide with leader's notes, and we've got a link for it up at the thebottomlineshow.com. Another concept that we learn about in First John is one that uh, kind of dovetails nicely off of what you just shared, the idea that Jesus' life is for us, but also is in us. And, and talk yeah. about how we, we need to understand the proper delineation between the two.
4: Well, um, many folk who've grown up in a church like myself first encountered teaching about Jesus along this kind of line. Jesus came to show me the life I was made for, and if I work hard in following him, I'll come alive to that love, uh, as opposed to understanding that Jesus came principally to be our substitute to trust first before our model to follow. And First John, again, highlights union with Christ, which, is, of course, is a theme that runs throughout the New Testament, that, that Jesus has done something for us even before his death. He fulfilled the law for us, and by his death upon the cross, he took the judgment we deserve, and now in his resurrection, the gift of the Spirit, he is living his life in us and through us. So central categories that we sometimes miss and therefore miss a lot of the beauty and the riches of the gospel.
0: I'm talking with Dr. Scotty Smith today here on The Bottom Line about his powerful new study in First John, and as you're hearing our discussion today here on the program, and of course there's a link for the book up at the thebottomlineshow.com, you may be asking the same question that I have been asking for the, I'll say at least for the past four or five years, uh, Scotty, and I would love for you to address this because I know you bring it up in, in this new uh, study guide on First John, the fact that what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it yes. mean to literally the question that you you uh, ask in this book? What mm-hmm. does it mean to be uh, someone who lives as children of light? Talk about how First John, two thousand years ago, shows us what our unfortunately guys like George Barna have been telling us for the past year, saying, "Hey, there are a lot of people who are professing faith in Christ, but they're really mm-hmm. not living as children of light."
4: Well, and thank you. And that's just a great question because at the at the end of First John, you find this mm-hmm. very bold statement of why he wrote the book uh, in terms of affirming that life is in the sun and we can know that we have eternal life. Well, eternal life, as defined in 1 John and also in the Gospel of John, eternal life is not so much a quantity of life, but it's a quality of life. That we live forever is awesome, but, but eternal life is knowing God and His Son, Jesus, whom He has sent. And one of the burdens that John has as he writes First John is precisely along that line. He's writing, like I said, probably 40 years or so after the resurrection, and by that time some people have just gotten accustomed to relating to a community of faith. And he just really wants to make a big distinction between there is a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. And what John does so beautifully is... This core reality of God's love lavished on us in Jesus, it really does change us. And he just says, if there's no change in the way you view God's uh, rule over your life, why would you claim to be enjoying his grace? So he's, Mm -hmm. he's just doing a good job of helping to press in what is the Christian life.
0: Boy, that's, that's a reminder that we, we need to have, oh, often with great passion, kind of a, a, echoing the words of Martin Luther about, you know, the reason I preach the Gospels, because I need to hear it every day, yes. <laughs> you know, each of us does. <laughs> hey, let's talk about uh, another part, I and mean, this is something that I think that uh, oftentimes, to your point about, you know, the difference between knowing Christ and, and having Christ, you know, in uh-huh. and, as well as for us, is how do you remain in Christ. I mean how how do we do so? And John addresses this once again with his seventy years of wisdom back two thousand years ago. Talk about that, Scotty Smith, of what first John teaches. Yes. Well Spirit.
4: like I said, John having written the gospel of John, uh, receives some of that firsthand knowledge in, in the Gospel of John thirteen through seventeen, where Jesus says that you are to abide in the you are to abide in my love. So in some ways, 1 John is an expansion, it's a re-celebration of what it means to remain in Christ. So remaining in Christ, first of all, we, we did not earn our way into Christ, so we don't earn our way staying in Christ. But the theme of remaining, the theme of abiding, once again, are highlighting more of an organic union rather than putting any fear in my heart that I might not do enough to stay in Christ, or did I ever do enough to get in Christ? So the theme of remaining, one of the things John writes, and he does this in the book of Revelation as well, is to say this, that, look, have no fear. If you know Christ, you will absolutely endure to the end but just make sure you do know Christ. And for John, mm. that's the issue of, do you know how great your need was that Jesus alone can meet? You needed forgiveness and righteousness. You did need a second chance. So John is just really highlighting just how big grace is. In fact, grace rebukes us before it absolutely delights us because it says our need is so great Jesus alone could meet it.
0: Mm that's powerful insight from dr scotty smith today here on the bottom line i'm roger marsh scotty's new book on first john is called first john relying on the love of god and we've got a link for this book up at thebottomlineshow.com as we continue we're going to talk about hope we're going to talk about the people who are kind of frustrated with the fact that they think well you know jesus is always being told to us as being the only way uh how could it be just him if scripture kind of defines him in different ways. We're going to talk about that too on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues in just a moment. Dr. Scotty Smith, my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. Scotty is the author of a brand new uh, resource, uh, a study guide of sorts called First John, Relying on the Love of God. Uh, If you are a pastor, if you're a Bible study leader, I think a half dozen guys at my church right now who can't wait to get their hands on this book Scotty and uh, and use it for Bible study or small group and it's important for us to, to to take these steps here too with all of your experience with the different seminaries you've taught at the books you've written the churches you've founded I mean you you're looking back now and saying hey you know what with with all of the the, the wealth that I have here was it I hate to say was it easy to write a book like this was it was, I mean because I'm sure you got so much information kind of swirling around in your head and your heart uh, you know how it's probably more of a question of what do I leave out than what do I put in
4: well the the good news is um, I had a wonderful spiritual father who was a seminary professor of mine and then was a spiritual dad for 21 years his name was Jack Miller at Westminster seminary and and Jack, basically he loved this book he loved first john in fact he was the one that really highlighted this theme for me as one of his sons in the faith that and and so we know and can rely on the great love god has for us so i think that for me uh seeing some central themes in any book of scripture makes it easier to stay on task and to listen to that theme and how it shows up in all the chapters so this was a, a fun study guide. It was a study guide to write that really connected me, with, again, with how much my spiritual father taught me about that. Really, there's nothing more than the gospel. There's just more of the gospel. Mm, and that. Uh, that just really comes through First John so profoundly.
0: One of the key themes, we, of course, we pick up in a book like an epistle, like First John, is the theme of love, of course. But another uh, central point is, is the concept of hope our need for it, and where we can actually find it. Talk about the transforming power of oh, hope that we yeah. see in the first show. Well,
4: hope, you know, right in the middle of this book, you have this marvelous section beginning in the third chapter, when John really calls us, calls us to a real visual reality. He says, behold, or consider how great the love is, the father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of god and that is what we are what we will be we do not know but we know when we see jesus we will be made like him all who have this hope set themselves apart purify themselves as he is pure so i think roger this theme of hope first of all it needs to be understood as in scripture hope is never a whim it's never the crossing of fingers it's not even just calculated desire uh, hope is seeing god 's future promise to us and remembering it into the present, so wow. hope has a profound function of enabling me to have a certainty right now, not a coginess but a certainty that enables me to love my neighbor labels me enables me to live on mission and for John. The great hope that we have is, number one, that right now we are as loved by God as much as we ever will be because of the finished work of Jesus. Secondly, he will complete in us the good work he began. So that profoundly frees us to look outwardly.
0: And hope is the expectation of what is certain. It's not a wish. It's not clicking your heels three times and hoping that God exactly, gets you back to heaven. Exactly, you know? well said. I love the way you put that, Scotty Smith. The book is called First John, Relying on the Love of God. And we've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. You know, there was a phrase that was very popular maybe 10 15 even 20 years ago uh, it's all about Jesus it's all about Mm -hmm. him it's all about God and I think a lot of people took that to heart and said sure we get it Mm -hmm. but in first John that's kind of where we see the basis for this and and it's really more than just saying okay well it's all about Jesus so nothing else matters but I don't really know what that means talk about what that means and how John kind of explains it for us
4: well once again for John who wrote the gospel and revelation uh, John has a super high Christology. In fact, in his gospel, he actually starts in his first chapter, kind of like a parallel with Genesis chapter one, where right. where John writes that Jesus was not created. In fact, Jesus created all things, and so to say that Jesus. Uh, alone is central, or Jesus alone matters. It's just a way of saying, when we really begin to see more clearly the person and the work of Jesus, then what matters to him will matter to us. And quite frankly, as creator and sustainer of all things, that includes everything. So to be Christ-centered actually will be to look at the world differently. It'll be, be to look at the world as those who want to steward the environment. It will be to live in the sphere of life in which God gave me my calling uh, as someone extending the presence of the resurrected Jesus. So really, Christ-centeredness is Christ's comprehensiveness for the whole of life.
0: Mm. And there's uh, you write about in the book of that whole preoccupation, if you will, with Jesus really is the antidote for spiritual warfare. It's the antidote for any of the pain that we experience in this life. And it it should be our primary focus in the same way my wife and I were just praying this prayer this morning, that our focus would be on Jesus as clearly as it was for Peter when he was walking on water. I mean, because
4: that's profound right there. And uh, uh, John himself, that would be his worldview. In fact, you see it even seven, eight, ten years later, when he wrote Revelation at about age 84, he is so alive to the resurrected Jesus, and it compels him to encourage Christians to live in Rome, not just waiting to get out of this mess, but waiting expectantly for Jesus to finish making all things new so that we really do engage the culture, stay present, be good neighbors, live in love to God's glory until the day Jesus truly does come back.
0: Scotty Smith is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. We're talking about his new book on First John. It's simply called First John, Relying on the Love of God. We've got a link for the book up at the thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, Scotty, one of the things that John writes about in First John in this first of the three epistles that he wrote uh, is the, uh, uh, the, the the concept, of course, that eternal life is certain that we as yes. as Christians can can take can take it to the bank as they say. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm seeing a growing number of people I mentioned George Barna earlier George is a regular on this program and his statistical analysis of what's happening with people who are professing Christians especially here in the United States is uh, I don't mind saying disappointing but it's also horrifying to yeah. see that there you know for 176 million people who profess that they are Christians and believe in God maybe about you know 5 or 6% of those people actually live this out and they kind of start it's Jesus and stuff you know in terms of you know they're trying to be trying to be so open to other people that they wind up giving equal platform to it something yes. tells me Scotty you know I would love you if you'd unpack this if you would something tells me that there are a lot of people who are accepted Christ as savior and lord but they're not totally convinced that uh John 14:6 is really accurate um, talk about how we can really know and what First John teaches us about that truth that's in the Well, uh, and Apostle. of course,
4: the, the passage you just quoted from John's Gospel, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, uh, the singularly. And for John, uh, as he wrote his whole body of material, John understood that Christianity is absolutely, singularly the presentation by which uh, we can know the love of God in this life and the life to come, and yet the the way in is narrow because we have to get so low. See, Jack Miller used to say, until grace insults you, it will never delight you. And I kind of referenced that a little bit earlier, and it means this, that our need is for forgiveness and righteousness, and Jesus gives us both. Now, that narrow way, however is backed up by the promise of the God who first converted Abram, this pagan moon worshiper, the story in Genesis 12-17, through and said to Abram, Abram, count the stars, sand, and dust. So big will my family be eventually through the one that's going to come through the nation, that I will make of you. Now John, uh, again, about 10 years after he wrote 1 John, had this vision in Revelation 7 of the redeemed family of God coming from every single race, tribe, tongue, and family group. That's rooted in the promises of God. My point would be this, uh, Roger, that uh, absolutely I believe that there's no other name given under heaven among men by which we can be saved, but that is not a story of God bless us for and no more. The Lord is redeeming His family from every single people group that have ever sucked oxygen. That should encourage us to live on mission it should concern us of course that in any country where there's far more professing people than those who truly perhaps have saving faith but the onus is not on me to earn my way in but to be really clear do do i see jesus plus nothing as the basis of my hope he is i.e god building this giant family that no man can count It's a fabulous story, it's a powerful story, but each one of us are called to deal with the question, am I trusting in Jesus plus nothing for eternal life?
0: Boy, that's a great way for us to wrap this conversation up, because it really does put a button on this and put a put a ribbon on it, I should say, too. Mm. Uh, Dr. Scotty Smith, the book is called First John, Relying on the Love of God. We've got a link for this book up at com. Scotty, thank you for your time and, and for this resource, too. It's a huge—I know Brothers, it's going to be a huge help.
4: great to visit with you today. I envision you sitting under a palm tree, or at least seeing one, not just <laughs> airplanes from John Wayne Airport. And uh hope you have a fabulous rest of your— week and hope we can visit again sometime.
1: Always
0: enjoy the conversations with Scotty Smith and this uh, resource we're talking about today here on The Bottom Line about First John. Uh, It's up at thebottomlineshow.com, and this is a book that in the world that we're living in right now, uh, I saw Tony Evans give an outstanding sermon about this a couple weeks ago, where he was talking about uh, what it meant to be, uh, you know, (laughs) uh, to rely on the love of God, especially as you face the end of the world, as you face God in his judgment seat. Um, good resource to have. And First John is a good book of the Bible to memorize. Only five chapters, but uh, well worth it. Scotty Smith's book is up at thebottomlineshow.com. And we have copies of this to give away. As a matter of fact, uh, Tamara just sent me a note. We have one copy of Scotty Smith's book on First John to give away right now. Teresa has it for you. All you have to do is call her and ask her for it and be the correct caller, of course. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. Get your money out of a traditional 401k or IRAD now before the current administration raises
1: taxes even higher. Newsflash. The current administration wants to raise your taxes. That's all they've been talking about is tax increases this year, next year, and the year after. Why? Well, we have an enormous debt of $30 trillion, and so it has to be paid for somehow. And they've got to go after where they can get the money. And one of the ways they're going after it is IRAs and 401ks. And the IRS and the government are working on ways to make your 401ks and your IRAs more of a tax burden to you, which creates revenue for them. That's why we call your 401k and your IRA retirement plans ticking time bombs, because these things are going to go off
0: protect your nest egg from a huge tax bill. Ask Dennis Wilson and his team at Wilson Financial Services how you can defuse your ticking tax time bomb, otherwise known as your 401k or IRA retirement plans. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970 for simply better alternatives. My thanks again to pastor and author Scotty Smith for the outstanding book on First John And uh, we've got a copy of it that we're giving away right now here at the Bottom Line Show. Give Teresa a call, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the Bottom Line. First John, relying on the love of God and the study guide. It's got leader's notes. This would be a great resource, pastors, to use in your church starting this fall. Heck, the Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters movie. By Dr. Meg Meeker, a great resource to show at your church, to show at your Christian school, maybe even to sponsor a community's viewing of that movie um, sometime this fall. It could be a lot of fun just to say, hey, it's the father of the bride meets Dr. James Dobson, you know, type of stuff. And I think people will really enjoy it. You know, it's amazing how many people will rely on the love of God and God's equation goes like this. I'm so glad God loves me. The end. You know, I'm so glad that God loves me. The end. God loves me and God loves me and I'm so think of the praise songs that we sing in church every Sunday. Be honest. They're God's so good, you are good, 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 oh, you are good. good. We love that. Who doesn't? Who doesn't like being loved? I have a beach poo at home, a bichon freeze with a poodle mix. Uh, I think that's what they told us what we got him as a rescued dog. And he loves to be loved. He loves to be adored. Whoever had him before us trained him to do certain things that would make him look cute so people would give him treats. Between you and me, brothers and sisters, he's the most annoying dog I've ever been around because I don't necessarily need that kind of, some people do. If, if if you're looking for that kind of dog, call me after the show. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. I can't get rid of the dog. The family would have a fit. But that love is so conditional. I act like this and then you treat me like that. And you know, the thing about Scotty Smith's book that helps us kind of frame this is the love of God. We love because he first loved us. That's in 1 John. And when you think about the love of God and what God did for us, the love of God isn't a bunch of hugs that we get, you know, and treats and things like that for being good, quote unquote. It begins with God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? Because we're sinners. We're trapped in a sin-soaked world. And we need salvation. We need to be delivered from this. We need to reestablish the relationship between God and mankind. And the only way that's going to happen is if the blood of Jesus Christ pays the penalty for our sins. Full stop. So the idea that we can rely on the love of God, not only for our salvation, but for his Lordship in our lives, but then we can live the love of God and share that with other people. That's a huge issue. We, we need to be very mindful of the fact that that has to happen in our lives. If it does not happen in our lives, doesn't matter how nice you are, doesn't matter how many community service hours you give, how much money you donate to charity and things of that nature. If the love of God does not dwell in you richly and flow from you freely, then there's going to be one of those weeping and gnashing of teeth and depart from me, I never knew you. Let God's love saturate you and flow from you freely. That's the bottom line.